Welcome to the podcast where ordinarily we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed to make something Who. Well, we did that last month with The Edge of Destruction and The Doctor's Wife, and now we're back with something of a companion to that piece. Hello, I'm Richard, and this is Something Who podcast episode 72. And with me is science and astronomy writer Giles. Hi, Giles. Hello. Hello. How are you? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, good. Just back from holiday, so, uh, you know, fairly bright. Excellent. And we've got a special guest this time, so it's a big hello to Steve Manfred. Hello, Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Keep that going. Yeah, I, I, I did I hear I, someone else saying that the other day, <laughs> not to not to me, but um, but yeah, I thought okay, yeah. it's not too late. <laughs> well, you never know; we might materialize in ancient Rome when the year began in March. Ah, true, oh, yes. yeah. and we're all up Excellent. there now. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, welcome to Something Who, Steve. Great to have you on. Perhaps you could introduce yourself to listeners of the podcast. Well, I am a long-time Doctor Who fan since 1982, living in West Central Wisconsin, USA. And I have the good fortune to be a geographical physician close to Neil Gaiman when he lived here. <laughs> and I became his go-to person for the first for being able to see the new Doctor Who at all because we didn't have it for the first year on a network here. Uh -huh. So I, I was his, uh, he called me his dealer. <laughs> <laughs> we would meet in, in dark places or our restaurants happily between us and between me or his personal assistant, Lorraine, and hand over a disc that uh, had files that might have come from a torrent. I think the statute of limitations is run on this now. So we get a <laughs> We were share files. We were doing some file sharing so that he could see the the new Doctor Who episodes. Yeah, and in a timely fashion, not get spoiled, as mm. as he would. Yeah, missed out by one hour when the Master was revealed in series three. That was a bit Ooh. of a bummer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, did he, he got spoiled for it? Uh... They had plastered it all over the website. The Master is back, and he had accidentally glanced at that one hour before I got there. With the oh, yeah. <laughs> so he knew <laughs> that was coming. But then I also did a little behind-the-scenes connection between him and the writing team, the incoming writing team, on Doctor Who, mm -hmm. and got them talking to each other and got them to the point where they, they wanted to write for, originally for Series 5, or the episode that eventually became The Doctor's Life in Series 6, and then also mm -hmm. again in Series 7, we had Nightmare and Silver. Mm -hmm. And during the writing process, I was sort of under-the-table, clandestine, extra unofficial almost not quite script editor <laughs> on his end of things especially when it came to continuity points especially in doctor's wife there was a lot of that that he wanted to put in and his own memory was faded enough that he, he needed to know again uh, yeah. what he should be looking at again what stories to look at again sometimes i would supply him classic series episodes that maybe weren't on dvd yet things like that mm. and give him the research material so you do it himself or if he just had a one-off question He'd ring me up or email me and, and ask, like, is there a good vacation spot they were always trying to get to that I can say at the end of the show? Well, they were always trying to get to the Eye of Orion for the longest time. <laughs> yeah. That wound up in the, in the show. Things like yeah. that. And it just continued on from there. And we still, yeah, yeah. we're still in fairly... Well, it's got less... Uh, he's so busy with other things at the moment. Show running mm -hmm. his own show. Like, he's full showrunner on Good Omens. And he's an executive producer on Sandman for Netflix. 
and he's he's so occupied with that he's not able to do much in the way of of Doctor Who stuff these, these days. Although he did do when the world shut down, he did contribute a story about the Corsair. This I'm pulling up for the podcast. I'm holding up the Doctor Who Adventures of Lockdown uh-huh. short story yeah. collection that happened when Emily Cook was doing all the tweet alongs during uh, yeah. in 2020. And yeah, so there's a story about the Corsair that anytime he does write something like that, a short story or some collection or other, he will let me know it's coming and maybe uh, double check the Dados facts right and suggest something else. Also, you could throw in there. So we still talk in, the, in that way. Sure. Uh, if only some of the um, some of the other writers were so assiduous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been a fan for a very long time, but, uh, you know, and it's all in there, but I mean, even then, sometimes when we're we're talking about something on this, or if I'm doing a preparation, I'm, I'm, you know, I have a flick in the internet just to make sure that my memory's correct. I mean, mostly it is, but there's the odd time when you know something will be slightly different from what I remember it. So, uh, you know, I, I can understand why even if you're 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 a big fan, you might it might be helpful to have someone like you, Steve, just to set set you, set uh, set you right. Yeah. And that, that kind of research has become so much easier these days, whereas what, at the time he was writing Doctor's Wife, a lot of it was that he didn't have Ritbox yet, where you could just pick out any single word mm. out of any story, stitch them together, form the lyrics to Ra 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 the Teeth. As we've seen happen lately. Yeah, everyone can do that now. Then you couldn't yet. You still needed someone with an encyclopedic knowledge. And I, mm. I developed one of those during the 1980s when... There was so much Doctor Who being broadcast in my area. I was getting three entire stories a week most of the time. <laughs> the whole of my early teens, because I was situated yeah. between two two PBS stations, one from Minnesota, one from Wisconsin, and they were showing so much Doctor Who between them that it all went in here, kind of a classic yeah. series, and it just it stayed there. So is is that the classic story then of you know the American fan that it's, it's nearly all Tom Baker or was it was it more what um, varied than that? It started out like that. It was Tom Baker reruns to begin with, but then it eventually turned into uh, they they ran through every Doctor they ran they ran every complete story. We saw the seventeen Arnolds, the at the time five Troutons, and they usually did them in we called it movie form. You would call it omnibus. Where they would yeah. he stitch all the episodes of the of the story together and, and form a movie, and then show that in, in one late night slot when the time slots were more flexible. Or uh, in the Wisconsin case, they would do it Sunday afternoons, so that if the four parters were usually ninety minutes, but sometimes it'd be ninety five if the clipping or reprieve were short. Or maybe only I think Leisure High only comes to about seventy three minutes. Clipping or reprieve were so long. <laughs> and... They fast forwarded through the Brighton Beach. Yeah, they <laughs> could do that. Yes. <laughs> But they didn't, uh, and I think on Megloss, they even once, they, it was so short, they repeated the chronic hysteresis part one extra time just to make it long. <laughs> <laughs> or they just didn't quite understand how they should stitch that, that together when, at episode one and two. And it also coincided with my family getting our first VCR. So I'd start recording them and then watching them whenever I wanted during the mi- middle of the week, as long as I had tapes for it. I mean, it was a, it was the case of, you know, the tape for a very expensive, you had to keep your recording over things. But I do still have a lot of the off-air that I eventually survived in a closet upstairs. It's interesting you're saying about with with the DVDs, not even, you know, and you, you think, okay, I guess we're looking back at 2008, 9, 10 kind of period. And, and yeah, you forget we were only about halfway through the DVD yeah, releases and a lot of the VHSs has already 
were being delisted. So it's hard to remember that it's quite that recently that a lot of stuff wasn't available. Right. There was there was an example of that that applies to Doctor's Wife, and it being one of the things I wanted to mention when I listened to the Your Doctor's Wife podcast and re-listened again a couple of days ago. Me those wanting to interject the things that you know, right. I, I know the answer to this. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, while we're talking today, the question came up about the message queue. Yes. Yeah. And how that got in there. And Neil had written a foreword for a novel that Kim Newman wrote. I can't remember the title now, but it was, it was this higher end novel series of hardbacks that came out there towards that. the, towards the tail end of the wilderness years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Neil David my favorite and wrote an introduction to that where he talked about how exciting the war he war game was. He hadn't seen it since it first aired, mm-hmm. but he remembered a few things about the war games, and he also said in there, "I I don't think it would be good for me as an adult to see it again now. <laughs> Probably wouldn't hold up." He thought, and I, and I finally read that thing after I after I got to know Neil, and I went, "Oh no, no, war games holds up." You should yeah, see yeah. this. <laughs> and it wasn't out on DVD yet. So I had to make one, a copy for him to see, and mm. give that to him. And then, sure enough, what in the very first draft of Doctor's Wife, there's the timeline message queue. <laughs> and I said, aha, he picked up on that. Yes. <laughs> but others uh, were available, and I think he was able to buy his own copies. Like when he originally told me what his idea was for an episode, which we can get into too. And it was so TARDIS heavy, which I loved because it was the kind of story I loved as a kid. Mm-hmm. Anytime we went deep into the TARDIS or explored its capabilities more, I was all there for that. That was some of my favorite material. And so I would suggest, okay, here are the story that are available. You should buy and, and rewatch yourself on your own time now. Edge of Destruction, mm-hmm. yes. Legopolis, Capture of Alva. Yeah. Those were the biggies. And then I also mentioned, you might want to have a look at maybe Inferno because there's that they, they fly the console by itself. That yeah. wound up in the show. And one or two other things. Maybe did not watch the whole show, but maybe, maybe watch the scenes of it. And he did that. Yeah. Where, where where he could, where he couldn't, I, I stepped in. Yeah, I was reminded recently that Terminus, is, there's a bit, you know, where, where the TARDIS suddenly sort of materialises around Terminus, I, I suppose. But yes, you'd, I'd forgotten all that monkeying about in the TARDIS before. Oh, of course, with the dissolving walls and stuff. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> Terminus is a classic example of Stories I used to call the dregs, which I consider the whole story to be among the worst Doctor who ever did. But it's got a cl- great first episode. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Terminus is one of those. Underworld is another one of those where I love its first episode and it just completely died. <laughs> Web planets like that. Yeah. And then they did a story in the new series with monsters called dregs. Guess how true that Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did you how did you originally make that that connection with Neil Gaiman? Then was was it because you were a particular fan of his writing, or was it because you, you know you were the Doctor Who guy who could, could get in the stuff, or was it a bit of both? Bit of both. There, I was a fan of his his novels, but no, I wasn't much of a, a comic fan. Yeah. So I, I hadn't I didn't read Sandman until after he started doing novels. But the, the novel I connected with most was Neverwhere. Right. And there's a there's yeah. a, I remember in the Doctor Confidential with uh, Stephen Moffat's talking about Neil. And he'd, he, I think he'd read Never, or he'd either read Never, or he'd seen the show. And, and Stephen mm-hmm. Moffat's saying, I think this guy's a Doctor Who fan. I can smell it. <laughs> Just from the the, ambient, the, the atmosphere and, and some of the plots of Neverwhere. Mm-hmm. And I had made the same conclusion before 
when I read it myself, I thought, wait, as indeed did Kim Newman. And that's how he got him to write. The, right. Kim Newman pointed out, you know, a lot of Neverwhere seems like it's Web of Fear. The, the whole London Underground business mm. there. And, and I always thought also, to an extent, maybe also the villains, Mr. Croop, Mr. Vandemar, sort of Oak and Quill. Yes, yeah. Season f- I know season five and the Trout Nero made a big impression on Neil. And it kind of formed the, I need to say this, he just kind of formed the architecture of his brain, the way he, he thought about writing fantasy. Mind Robber is another big one, that, and that really took him off into his fantasy. Mm, uh, like right. he's, he's very proud of the fact that he and Peter Ling went to the same school. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> okay. I think so, yes. Not at the same time, of course, but yeah. And he wasn't, he wasn't minded to go and create a long-running motel soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Could have gone down a hole. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. No, yeah, the TV series is never where. I think that was... I guess I, I first encountered Neil Gaiman because he wrote the the, Doug, the Don't Panic Douglas Adams. Yes, yes, book. I read that too. And mm-hmm. and then Good Omens as well, which because I, I was a Pratchett fan. The first time I saw Neil in person was Douglas Adams was in Minneapolis doing a book signing mm. for Mostly Harmless. It was the second one he'd done. Like you've been you've been here twice. I've been to, I went to both of these. The second one was, was a big bookstore called Dream Haven. And mm-hmm. Neil turned up and was in the line of, of people to see to see Douglas that, but we didn't talk then. Well, then I went to one of Neil's mm-hmm. book signings and, and we briefly talked that. I had been talking to him a little bit through the frequently asked questions line that he had on the website, mm-hmm. but then w- where we really connected up was at the end of end of two thousand five, going into two thousand six, when the Christmas Invasion airs, and we still didn't have an American network to show it off through. He had seen. Series one, you've got the Jane Goldman screenwriter mm. had sent Neil a copy of the series one DVD set, and he's got mm-hmm. a, he had multi region players. And so he saw that, blogged about it, and went, aha, they got it. <laughs> mm. And then I made contact through the website again and say, look, it's silly that you of all people have to see the, the episodes as they're new. Why mm-hmm. don't I meet up with you or, or your assistant at somewhere between us, you know, which wound up being the uh, Airbook Coffee in Hudson? <laughs> I'll give you a copy that I get of Christmas Invasion right after it airs, and all the ancillary stuff that went with it, like Attack of the Grask. Mm, that was right. the title, right? Or was that the Sarah Jane one? Anyway, the, and the, the confidential that went with it. So I make these that disc, and then we went on with that during the the tenancy, where I'd either meet up with him originally with clandestine sight, and then eventually we got to the plot. He just come over to the house, so I'd mm. go over to the house, yeah. and we just shoot the breeze about what we thought about the episodes and how good they were. Yes, yeah, so something else you tend to forget in, around that era was, obviously you could file share on the internet, but it was kind of a long and slow business. So it, it, it wasn't the sort of thing where you just you click on a button and start watching it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you mentioned the Douglas Adams things. I mean, in terms of Neil's era then as a Doctor Who fan, I mean, he, he mentioned, I think, on a podcast I was listening to that he had watched Hartnell. Obviously, Troughton big influence did i mean did he sort of stay on or i mean i guess he's getting getting to be a, a teenager i suppose by the time pertwee and baker come along he saw pertwee yeah. yeah quite like that too and certainly early thought baker i'm not sure at what point his devotion faded it might have been mm-hmm. about the time peter dave described because by then neil's own yeah he was a, becoming an adult at this point and and yeah. his own his own career was, was beginning to take off he was still dipping in occasionally but I like to say that his fandom went through a long dormant phase, which caught with, with the wilderness year. He didn't make much contact with the show 
when it wasn't on television. Like, you didn't get into any of the spin-off stuff, the, the Big Finish audios, the, the New Adventures novels, all of that. It, that. He knew it was going on, but he let it pass it by. He didn't really get back into it hard again until Series 1 happened, and it was so good. And then he went through this period of binge-watching. Yeah, you would get a lot of the classic TV. Cause the one wasn't just himself. He wanted to show his kids. Mm. You know, the, the two daughters that were still living at home with him at that time, uh, Holly and, and Maddie. And it wasn't just Dr. Who. He wanted to indoctrinate them on other aspects of British culture. Like, I remember, I, th- I think Maddie quite liked watching Dad's Army at one point. <laughs> They're going to see that, that a lot. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of the British shows that he'd grown up on that were now available on DVD, he would get them and, and show them mm-hmm. to the kids. They, they would be important. Especially when you want to procrastinate, write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing research. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah I mean, you can m- take the boy out of Portsmouth or Cosham, but you can't can't take the Cosham out of the boy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But it, yeah, it woke up again big time when the news came back, and then mm-hmm. I helped, helped feed that. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of similar for me. I, I think. I mean, I I did pick up on Big Finish, you know, around about the turn of the millennium, but. But my fandom went into sort of shut down for about a decade between the you know, throughout the nineties. Although Giles, I think I mean that was probably one of your more active periods. I was a bit later because I was organising conventions and stuff in the in the early nineties, doing yeah you know, around, around ninety three. But then I had my yeah I, I had my, <laughs> I had my dormant period where basically after the TV movie I kind right. of went went off the boil. I just thought well it's had, it had its chance to come back, sadly didn't happen. Okay. I suppose that about wraps it up and got rid of a load of stuff that I never regret getting rid of. <laughs> Me, I, I never went dormant. I could, because at the same, same time, this, the series did the trail off. The new adventures novel started. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. started reading those. And then at the same time, I found the internet. Yeah. Just the Usenet news group, Record Doctor mm-hmm. Eleven, big regular on that. And there was still a lot of fan discussion going on there and rumors going on first about like the dark dimension. That, yeah. well, we're going to get a 30th okay, anniversary well, yes. show in 1993, and of course that didn't happen. And and, <laughs> uh, and then the TV movie started ramping up, and uh, mm. Jean-Marc Lafcier contacted us, was telling us what was happening with the production and all, mm. all that sort of thing. And then the TV movie happened, and we thought, are we going to get a series? I mean, we're getting, maybe not. Were the ratings good enough? Well, maybe I'll rerun it once, and it'll do better uh, on the rerun. Is the rerun going to happen? Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> and then, too long after that, big finish began. Yeah. And but the, and also at this point, I was old enough and just definitely to be able to to go to what conventions there were still here. They were usually wrapped in the other general science fiction. Mm-hmm. And Chicago Tardis was going, and right. starting in '99. I would go to that regularly. Oh uh, yeah, but I can remember where I was. The day in 2003 that we we got the news that uh, Russell T Davis would bring the show back, I had just I was in my apartment, not where I am now, uh, but just a couple blocks down the road here, and I just had to move all of my furniture into my kitchen because the landlord was going to replace all the carpets. So there I am, surrounded by everything I owned in my kitchen, and I, <laughs> I, I managed to get the computer hooked up again and and. The first thing I see on the Gallifrey based new, uh, the sorry, the Gallifrey one news page of the month mm. was the the announcement that the show, the show was back. I'm like, wow! <laughs> <laughs> and it was so surreal because it had been a miserable day moving everything, uh-huh. yeah. and then there that hat happened, and it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it couldn't have been a bigger shock. I think at that period. I mean, I, I think well, certainly as far as I was concerned, it, it you know there'd been so many false dawns. Mm. 
that uh, it, yeah, it, it never seemed very likely. And then, yeah, uh, amazing that that it became such a big success. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, in terms of the of the Doctor's wife, then, as as you say, it was originally intended for series five. I was listening to Neil Gaiman on on David Tennant's podcast earlier today, just to sort of try and get a little bit of background. He, he mentioned that the that the mo- that the the money ran out. I, d- I don't know how how true that is. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. They originally started talking about doing it before Moffat had been announced. Okay. You said you bridged, you made a connection. Yeah, um, that goes back to the Gallifrey One forums. Uh, Stephen Moffat was there mm, yeah. during the David Tennant years. He was talking yes, about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I would basically collate anything he said that was interesting to Neil and email Neil with what he said. So it was kind of one way at that point. But then the Hollywood writers' strike of 2007 happened. Mm-hmm. And... I remember seeing this list of the companies that they were striking against and Neil being a, a member of the Directors Guild East in America was honoring the strike and had shut down any work he was doing with at that time. And one of the listed companies was BBC Worldwide Americas. And I thought, oh, but Stephen Moffat is also doing stuff, stuff in the States. He's got to be a member of the, of the Writers Guild here too. Mm. But he's still writing... For, for Doctor Who and whatever else he was doing at the time in Britain. And I thought, wait a minute, are you sure you should still be working on that, Steve Love? Because there's this strike happening. Mm-hmm. And I wind up being this go-between between the two of them, discussing <laughs> whether or not they should be on strike. And that was kind of the first contact they ever had, was, was that whole discussion. And that eventually turned out they were fine the way they were, was because residency, where you are, and where you mm-hmm. what, what you're just, Citizens of it all that that all figured into it, and then eventually the strike was settled too. But then the at the Gallifrey One convention that followed directly on, so this would have been February of '08, I guess. Now I had already heard a different but very well connected grapevine a, a few months before this that Stephen Moffat was going to be taking over the show, right? But it wasn't announced yet, and he was still a guest of Gallifrey One that year. Mm-hmm. And I can remember of uh, sitting sitting directly behind him in. A video room where he's doing a commentary with Arnold Blumberg on Blake, live commentary in the room, and mm-hmm. he said something or other about, yeah, well, next year we'll have to get a bigger room because it was it was overflowing out out into the mm. hallway. We're gonna have to be on the main stage, and I'm, I'm standing right behind him. And I took great effort of will not to say, yeah, right, you're not gonna be here next year. You're gonna be running the show. <laughs> I knew that, and he didn't know that I knew that. Mm, right. But then I, I made a point of dropping hints to both him and to Paul Cornell, who was also there that year, in the lobby when, when he didn't wander up to people. Is dropping hints that Neil Gaiman was loving the show and that he was interested in maybe writing for it. Mm-hmm. Then I knew, okay, I know these two might be on the same plane going home. They might discuss this. Mm, yeah. And I don't know if it was on the same play, but I know that they discussed this. And because then shortly thereafter, Deal had a book signing tour in the UK. He went, mm-hmm. and, he went and saw Paul Cornell at his place during that. And very shortly after that, there was a, uh, a dinner meeting, which I know that uh, uh, Stephen Moffat and, and Deal talked about, where Moffat did reveal that, yes, I'm, I'm going to be thinking over the show, not announced yet. And Neil said, yes, Steve Baffert told me that a few months ago. <laughs> and then they started pitching ideas back and forth and one of them was the idea that turned into the doctor's life and a big starting point was actually what you called the subplot 
on the podcast. It wasn't. It was, like, it was, like, it was the main plot to begin with. Who basically doing the classic story of the, the most dangerous game, you know, the uh, hunter and the hunted, mm-hmm. with, with the TARDIS having been taken over by something and made the dangerous place the Doctor has to now navigate and survive it. Yeah. That was, the, that was the origin point of the story. But as the more he thought about it, and he was thinking about this on the plane right over, and then he, myself, and his daughter Holly all met at a table at a restaurant here, here in my town when I was handing him over the latest DVDs. Because I think the Series 4 had just debuted that same week. Mm, right. And we talked it over, and he had realized on the way here that he can't really have the Doctor be the one under that kind of threat because he knows the turf too well. He's got too much of a home field advantage. Mm, yeah. So really it ought to be the companion who's in there and the doctor yeah. stuck outside and he's got to save the companion. He's in, in that, in that hunt. And he's like, okay, well, if, the, if it's been taken over, what's happened to the normal parts? It, it's soul. It's, it's life force. It's whatever you want to call it. Matrix. Mm-hmm. I think that came up at it was yeah. never meant to be the, the Galfrey matrix. It's just like a pure mm-hmm. matrix that runs it. Yeah. 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 Um, what's happened to that? And that spiraled into, well, it's get, he's going to have to take it out of the TARDIS and put it somewhere else. What if that's a person? And then the, the, the light bulbs went off and, ooh, yeah. now we've got something here. And it, it all developed that, that way. So it kind of went back to front in the, the development point. It is indeed the episode does, and that's the way the TARDIS communicates. She communicates in reverse sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the very last writing things that went into the final drafts was when when it became clear that one of the big things were that this episode is about is about communication between the two mm-hmm. of them and how this is the first time that mm-hmm. they can finally talk. And I'm sitting there at looking at the draft that Neil's looking at me, and I'm going, um, "Yeah, this should really about be about communication." So then he has them say hello at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing she says. I just wanted to say hello. And he sets it up. Then you get the way and you run in a bit at the beginning where she says goodbye. To she, she says goodbye at the start. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that <laughs> whole thing. And that was kind of also in response to another, one of the best notes was let's make them cry with crying mm-hmm. capital letters. <laughs> And that, that's the thing that hit people was when, when mm-hmm. I just wanted to say hello. Hello, doctors. It's so very nice to meet you. And then she very yeah. quietly also says, I love you as she made the way. Just hear that. Oh. Thing. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Need turn up, turn up the volume as she's fading away. Okay. I need to look out for that. <laughs> well, as means of communication goes, it's probably better than um, trying to turn people into homicidal maniacs and <laughs> some. <laughs> so, whatever the whatever goes on. <laughs> yes, but that up that obtuse, mm. strange means of communication that you got in, in the edge of destruction. That was very mm. much a, a, a an under, undercurrent theme that that yes. I yeah, suggested yeah. should be in this mm. because she's exists in all of five time and space. Mm. Very difficult to pin it down to a linear yeah timeline like we existed. And that the doctor exists in the sequence of the vortex. Yeah, so we were discussing that in the, in the podcast. What, yeah, the, the sense of you know, can the TARDIS see in you know, the past and the future, uh, you know, and the present all at the same time? I, I don't. Know if, and there was a bit of that that sort of came across in the show, but it wasn't entirely clear. Yeah, that was the idea. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, did you spot other things? You said you'd made some notes uh, of the bits we got wrong <laughs> when we made... Or you said no. Uh, let's see here. Do you want me to just take them in order? Yeah, just, you know... Mm. Uh, yeah, okay. Whatever it was. Okay, when I came to the sequencing of what happened and, and why it happened in the production order. So, yeah, they were cooking this up before, right about the time David Tennant announced he was going. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. No, I remember the, that first discussion that we had that I talked about. David was having his wall where he was talking about, oh, maybe I do want to stick as Moffat had talked about yeah, this at yeah, this point. Yeah. And I think he'd mentioned Neil's name uh, that he might be writing for us. And, and he had told him the, the cracks storyline that was going to run through 35, the cracks in time. Yeah. And that all sounded good to, to David. Then he finally said, no, I've got to stick to my guns. I've got to, I've got to go and I did. Mm. But it was during that, um, the, the cracks business was going to feature very heavily in the story had it been in series five. And, I was wondering how it would fit it in. Yeah. Well, I wanted it to be episode 11 of series five because mm-hmm. they wanted, they figured this, this switch that we're pulling in the show, what the doctor being able to talk to the fartist for the first time ever mm-hmm. might be the kind of thing that you only throw when you're about to destroy the TARDIS for good, mm-hmm. which is the, the running plot line that's being hinted at all through series five. Yeah. yeah. You see, you know, the bits of the, the, the sign from the front of the police telephone mm-hmm. reviews, the public side that he finds in the crack when he, when Rory disappears in yeah. the yeah. of cold blood. All, those sorts of things. And also when, at the start, when they're flying into the, the bubble universe, they were originally going to fly through a giant version of the crack. Oh, okay. no, really. would have been That was how they got there, um, hmm. through one of the, those kind of cracks. I see. As, and it was going to be a very downbeat ending, a very funereal ending, because there they mm-hmm. was a lovely scene where they were going to bury, if this wasn't going to just fade away, the... There would be a dead body, and they they mm-hmm. fly somewhere out in space on an asteroid or on a small planet, and they were going to bury her. And there was this daisy chain on the grave, I think, something like that. And the whole idea is the Doctor's afraid that this is really about to happen, mm. that the TARDIS is actually going to be destroyed. Right. And it's, yeah. of course, that's what hap- we we see that's happening in Pandora Opens. That's what we get in Pandora Opens. Yeah, I mean, it would have so been it was going to be a very, very different way. In that order. Very much mm-hmm. different story in terms of that had it been in, in Series 5. Mm-hmm. But as as they were going through production, they had to do a lot of reshoots on the first block. And that had a knock-on effect throughout the year. And it, re- it severely reduced the budget that was available to make Hungry Earth and Cold Blood. I saw one of the things, me being this clandestine underground extra sort of script editor, was I got to see drafts of series five episodes as they were right, coming right. in as well because they cause they were sharing them with Neil Neil with Sherlock with the DC too, and I remember the the Hunger Earth Cold Blood was a lot better on those original pages than it ended up being, and it's all because of budget cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was a much vaster, grander scale to the happenings in that story that we that we basically saw, and when they got down to they they were saving Doctor's wife. Wasn't called that yet. It was, it was still bigger on the inside. That was, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. The very original title was "The House of Nothing." All right. Okay. So, but uh, this, uh, an original no- notion for house was going to be a haunted house, and specifically a haunted lighthouse. It's going to be a sort of lighthouse creature in this bubble universe. 
uh, mm-hmm. overlooking everything. And so, yeah, the, this, this email came through saying that we've reached one of the script editors emailed them and said, um, we've reached a point in where we're going to have make the last two episodes in the cheaper areas of Cardiff. Mm-hmm. And we can't, we can't possibly afford to do your episode this year. We've, we've tried some rewrites to maybe ourselves to maybe try and make this work in the cheaper areas of Cardiff. We can't come up with anything. And so they, well, the final block, if you look at that, the final block of that year was Amy's Choice and The Lodger. And, yeah. Right. In which so, are both, both of them are made in the cheaper areas of Cardiff. And I guess that's how Amy's Choice came to be, was they needed a really easy-to-film story where it, it all, all they use is location stuff in Cardiff on a wintry day and mm-hmm. the TARDIS interior. And that worked. That's a really good episode. I, I really like mm-hmm. how that turned out. Here. Some of those the smaller scale things are sometimes my favorite ones. But anyway, so they, they said, but we are going to make this. This is not not like a lot of these other writers that we've cut loose already mm-hmm. this year. It's, mm-hmm. for one thing, we almost have a royal command in that we already have this contest going for the, the Blue Peter Design of Artist Console competition. Oh, of course, yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've got to come through on that. Now, they, they kind of hate, deferred there and the original idea was the kids were going to come and get to see the episode being shot, and then that, that had to be deferred for the year. Hmm. They had kept the, te- the tenant console room around all season long so that they could use it in Doctor's yeah. Wife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that couldn't happen because of this budget issue. So they, then they think, well, we've got to do something with it this year. Oh, I know. We could, we could tap that extra scene out of the beginning of 11th Hour. And that whole sequence of him, you know, he almost hits that spire on the, on the church or whatever that was. Yeah. Where he's yeah. out of the that was all added in almost just to justify the fact that they kept the, co- the tenant console <laughs> okay. all year long. Yeah. And yeah. then they realized, okay, so what we've got to do that we do need the space. We'll make sure that Neil's episode gets made in the first block for Series 6. Right. In production terms, it was really only a delay of three, about three months. So by then on Series 6, you've got a new, a new budget year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they could afford to do things. Although in, still there were uh, budget restrictions in it, and there was the amount of writing effort that went into this story was in, into that episode was probably three times what it normally is. Mm-hmm. And I know the issue came up of who who wrote what, this that and the other. Uh, I was seeing all the drafts, or at least all of the drafts. Of it. I didn't always see Moffat's. There was a for the, the series five version. Neil did about three and a bit drafts that he submitted right. and that was pretty much all his work like you you would respond to their notes of course what they wanted it was mainly yeah. speed things up try and bring the, the stuff that's happening later in the episode bring it forward mm-hmm. that was the main note that they kept getting there but then when it came to the series six version some things had to change like they had to add rory because I was going to say, because Rory would have been missing. I was just about to say, well, Rory was missing from. Had it been in, had it been in series five, it would have been during the period where Rory didn't exist because he fall into mm-hmm. the trap. And the series five version had little hints that maybe Amy's remembering a little bit. And she and mm-hmm. Neil had to insert the. There was a scene where she fought, she finds the wedding ring, and like, mm-hmm. why is this here? Yeah, and it it beginning to trigger her memory of it, mm-hmm. to set up the the finale. So you had to write Rory in, and they, they said to him, we could do this thing where we drop him off somewhere or we'd keep him out of the way for the whole set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Neil said, no, 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 I, I like Rory as a character. Let me use mm-hmm. him, and let me see if I can get this in there. And he did. And he, so he mm-hmm. wrote a new draft, 
at least one, maybe two new drafts for the Series 6 version. Then he was starting to get a little stuck on some of the notes that were coming back. And at the same time, his career is extremely busy. He's trying to juggle mm -hmm. a few other things. He's spending longer on this than he had scheduled for it. So he said, I, yeah. Stephen Hoffman, look, I, I think I need some help here. Could you do a draft, please? Mm -hmm. And then he did. And incorporate directly the notes that he was trying to get Neil to, to take on board. And then Neil would do another draft in response to that. And then Moffat would do another draft in response to that. And they mm -hmm. tennis balled like this back and forth several times. Yeah. Yeah. There were a few drafts in the middle of that where they all did kind of a circular writing where they, I remember there was a sequence where they were going to bring back the communication cube in the middle. Right. And have, if, have that be the way that the doctor communicates to Amy and Rory while they're stuck inside the TARDIS and it's no, on its way away and they're trying to follow them at their, and they're, they're like, rather than use the telepathic circuits in the, in the TARDIS, which mm -hmm. was the original idea that did Moffat did, and I don't know which one, which of them came to this first. I, I just remember being in a shopping mall and getting an email from, from Neil and me looking at, the, at my phone going, okay, why is he suddenly asking where the doctor got the communication cube from in the first place in the war game? Uh, um, <laughs> well, he just took it out of his pockets, the answer. Mm. And then they did a draft where they, that's in there, and they're using that, and then they realized, no, wait, this is taking too long. It's made the scene 10 minutes long. They, they mm. cut it all out again. So yeah, they, yeah. They, there was some circular drafting like that. And mm. in the end result, my estimation for what I saw was the basic story is all heels. Mm. The actual writing of what's in there, portion-wise, I'd say it's about 60-65% Neil, 30-35% Stephen Moffat, and then trace amounts of lots of other people, like the director, the actors, and mm -hmm. a couple of traces of myself, just trace and find you. Mm -hmm. But that's about what it was. But then that 35% that I say, that's really the full effort of a full episode, really. Mm -hmm. it's, like the, it's, it's like this was written three times over, at least. So... Yeah, the amount of effort that they both put into it was far and above a normal one, mm -hmm. I, I believe. The other, other budget things kept up. Like there was a sequence during the Chartist chase seat bit where and as we got it, what we see of the deeper interior of the TARDIS is lots of corridors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of which are vertical, which was a Richard Clark, the director, and that was his idea was to do a love. I said just do the classic Russell T. Davis up and down chase mm -hmm. when it has some of these Corridor to be vertical with anti gravity that you can get, get up and down you. That was, that was Mr. Clark's idea. But Neil and Stephen Moffat always wanted to have at least one other room that we would go into mm -hmm. that we'd always heard about in the classic show. In the Series 5 version, that was going to be the swimming pool. Mm -hmm. okay. And there was going to be a bit where the, the, the well, we were going to find out the house had somehow jettisoned. Uh, yeah, I think House had to do a bit of jettisoning, try and get moving. And it had deleted the swing, the swing pool walls, but not the water. And the water was all okay, okay. still there. And you walk up to it and be this wall of water. And Amy was going to have to try and she was trying to, she was running away from nephew. Nephew's pursuing her. We saw a nephew a lot more in, in the series five version. That was a question that came up in the podcast with what would Amy have been doing by herself there? Well, there was a lot more back and forth between house talking to her and also nephew chasing her directly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And. She was going to have to swim sideways into this thing and swim through the swimming pool. Okay, then okay. that all had to go because A, they realized the, the effects budget was, on that was going to mm -hmm. blow everything. And B, they discovered Karen Gillan couldn't swim. Oh, okay. 
to that. So then Neil, Neil then, they're like, okay, Rory, in the series six version, Rory swings in the swimming pool to get away from mm-hmm. everything. They get no, 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 we can't afford it. Please don't do it. And then even when we do see some of the deeper interior in Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, where I, that one feels, in Series 7, Journey to the Center of the TARDIS feels to me like they're cleaning up this deeper TARDIS stuff that they couldn't afford to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, either because of it wasn't just money, it was also space limitation. Because they're shooting, uh, they're, they're still up for both studios, I believe, at the time. And they're still, they're shooting two episodes back-to-back. Dr. Black was shot in a, the same block as Night Terrors. Night Terrors, right, right. it's a Mark Gatiss mm-hmm. one. That was the original sequence in the series six was going to have Doctor's wife was going to be episode three, and Night Terrors would have been episode four. Yeah, because that's the one that they switched to the back home. And was then they eventually yeah, decided we got too many mm-hmm. dark stories in a row here. Let's move that one to the back half, the series six B. That one, that one was on the shelf for a year before we saw it. It was shot mm-hmm. in the first block, and we didn't see it for it. That might have the record of all this time between shooting a show and. Showing the mm-hmm. show was was yeah. in the regular series with the gap as well, mm-hmm. right? And then they brought forward Curse of the Black Spot and, and stuffed that in as episode three, and then Doctor Black the four. So that's the sequencing thing finally in mm-hmm. the swing pool thing. All had, all had to go, and we we when we, we finally did see it in Jury Center, we see it in the distance as a CG render. We never actually go into <laughs> the thing. They've always been afraid of showing the entire swimming pool. Because it's probably better than the version of Invasion of Time. <laughs> and that was specifically in there kind of as a... Uh, invasion of Time was when I said, okay, look at this. Take the concepts is true, but please try to ignore the fact. Don't use it in this use hospital. I think he actually said that on the Doctor Who Confidential episode. It goes but with Dr. Light. Don't, don't let, make it look like a disuse hospital. <laughs> and trying to avoid all that stuff, and, and because the, the studio space was cramped, meant that they couldn't even do a zero room. Mm, that was going to be the extra room that they were going to go oh, to. Okay. Mm. I, that might have been something I suggested, and then Neil took it on board, or it, he just said, what's, what's the cheapest room you can think of, Steve? Uh, me, Steve. Mm. We have two Stephen M's on this, sorry. <laughs> and I said, well, there's the zero room. There's a, just a big empty room. You can make it look like a white void, like we we see we you know that white void that we see on the Sarah Jane Adventures, when yes, yes, Sarah's yeah. talking to the trickster, and they're like, mm-hmm. "Why can't we do that again?" They do it all the time on the cheap show. Well, it's, mm-hmm. We can do it here too. And so they write in a zero room sequence. Rory was going to be the, the hero of that, where he was going to have to learn to levitate to reach the. There was a, a button way above their heads that he had to hit mm-hmm. to open the door again. Mm-hmm. So you have to learn to lev- levitate the way the Fifth Doctor does in Castor Valva. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and hit that button and get them out of there before House did something. I can't remember what it was. There was some threat that House had going at this point, of course, is to pursue. House is playing with his food. And the exec, one of the other execs came back and said, I'm sorry, we just don't have the studio space to do this, guys. We, we don't have, we, we, I'm sorry, we can't do this. <laughs> Neil and Stephen both going, you can't do an empty room? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you need a big cyclone or whatever. But yeah, like <laughs> right. <laughs> so that all had to go. But as it turned out, the episode still turned out 10 minutes over. Right. And it doesn't really show on Doctor's Wife, I find, because the it was most of the stuff that was cut in from the front end, there was going to be more background of the junkyard world. Like I remember, you've right, yeah. had the question about are other time lords coming here? Are other 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 spaceships that that would have been answered in that deleted material? Yes, there were mm. lots of other spaceships from other any any craft sufficiently advanced enough to 
generate a space-time warp to get it across the universe. That would run on the kind of energy the house needed to live on. Mm -hmm. And so he was attacking them too. And we would have, that would have been made clear in those opening okay. Okay. that were cut. In fact, there's a running gag we still see the end of where the doctor's trying to explain one of the engine designs to Rory that they're looking at above them in the jump. And he gives up and says, ah, oh, it's spacey-wacey. <laughs> and that the word space, the, the term spacey-wacey still comes up uh, uh, later in the episode. Well, I think when he's building the firewall at the end to explain why make sure that this can't ever happen again and to uh mm. we've also explained why but we can't make the TARDIS the clock again like this because this this nearly destroyed your beats being put into a, a human body like this talking literally it was a miracle that they got through it as it is you can't ever and uh, he just gives up and says it's spacey wacy why why, <laughs> why why we can't do this yeah, <laughs> yeah. It does make you, make you wonder when you see those amazing 3D images that, that you get these days in Doctor Who magazine showing you the studio floor setup for, for some of the classic series. And you've got, you know, five or six sets in a, in a sort of pretty tight area, some of which are just, you know, sort of six feet wide and, and a, a bit of backdrop or something. That If they could do that in Riverside <laughs> or Lime Grove or whatever, that, that, that they couldn't find space for a void now. But I guess things are different. I wonder that too, although I just... By coincidence, I just happened to be rewatching The Mind Robber myself, and right. I remember us when I first saw it on PBS here in the States and coming off film prints that had not been restored. Yeah, we could yeah. not see the Psychorama backdrop. Yeah. It looked like yeah. they were in a real void, but now with the cleaned up DVD, yeah, oh yeah, you can see it. It's clear they're, they're in a studio, <laughs> yeah. and that's the kind of thing you could get away with in 1968 yes. mm. on the television at the time. In the high death era, which we were now in, you couldn't. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's things like that that kind of choke off some possibilities where they used to. They used to. I am hopeful mm -hmm. that in the new RTD2 era and with Disney Plus coming on board and providing money, I'm hoping that they also be providing one of those things that they call the volume. Mm. That studio that they have that they've been using on the Star Wars series and I'm sure other, other, I hear other studios of all these two where they're, they're not using green screen anymore. They're actually projecting the backgrounds you know, on, on screens that are around the after that look so real and they've got the perspective just right that you can't tell. Right. This is, you, and the actors actually have something to look at now. They, they've got, yeah. wow, mm -hmm. that really is the alien landscape I'm on. I can see it. You know, they don't have to just be in a green room with a rock yeah. and that's it. You know, um, I'm hoping <laughs> that, that that's something they're going to adapt to with this new season. It's, it's, it's the evolution of that back rejection thing from the 1950s I movies. I was just thinking that, yeah, what goes around comes around. Yeah. It's a fantastic effect. I love it. Carrie Grant oversteering a car. Yeah. <laughs> if that had been available when Dr. White was shot, then we would have a lot of these things that we didn't mm -hmm. wanted to see could have been in there. Although, as I said, it was still too, it was still too long. Mm -hmm. It was a 10-minute cut. Now, when eventually the same thing happened to Ned, the Debris and Silver, there were 10 minutes that we cut out of that, but the cuts mm. in that hurt a lot more. And some of them were made not just because the episode was over, but there were other reasons. Mm. Things had to go, and they, they took with them vital bits of plot, and that's why, especially the first half of the story, has, maybe has some holes in it. So should we come on to... Come on to that. I see the very next note was what, talking about was Nightmare and Silver also a lot of rewrites. No, it wasn't actually. That that went through a lot. Fewer drafts. Mm -hmm. Neil did them all himself because Stephen Moffat couldn't do them at the time. He was too busy doing 50th anniversary stuff. Right. Yeah, that was when he was having his right having his nightmare year. Yeah. Yes. And as, yeah, at the same time, that 
it was the whole Caroline Skinner thing happened. Yeah. Mm. But Neil pretty much did all the right. And itself, Moffat only ever changed one line of that one. And that was just because of a, a production thing that happened on the day. Mm-hmm. But I remember seeing that Moffat say he was really pleased with, it, with the script that Neil given them. It, mm-hmm. but it, it was it was torn in. We are getting into it now. I do. It, it, <laughs> and I never felt an evidence over that everyone was on the same page. That the idea that they originally wanted to do, which was uh, make the Cybermen scary again, mm-hmm. and Neil and Stephen Moffat really wanted to be more like they were in the '60s, especially silent and creepy. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. that never fully got taken on board by the production team, and it, they wound up still as noisy as they ever have been. And they yeah, the, they've still got the stumpy moments. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was very disappointed when they were still as noisy mm-hmm. as they were. If we, yeah, it just never quite gelled. And what also, they got a director uh, who they they hired for his action shops, mm. but they also had two child actors, and yeah. they never he he didn't seem to know what to do with them, and that was a lot of the material that got cut. Right, was right. with was with our our, our two child. Uh, actors partly i think there was some miscasting there too and and this a director with it didn't just didn't uh, function mm-hmm. well with them so a lot of their material which explains some of the stuff that going on in the first half had uh had to go and again, and again it was too long again it wound up being yeah. 10 minutes too long so mm-hmm. that part of the, the failure i think the second half actually still works pretty well yeah, of that yeah. Silver. and one one good thing about nightmare and silver it, it's really the first one where i feel like they finally and it, this was deal, but they finally got to grips with Clara taking charge of a situation mm-hmm. and being the boss and telling everybody what, what, to, uh, what to do and how we're going to defend this castle and all this, which she hadn't mm-hmm. really done up to that point. Mm-hmm. And from then on, that's her character. And, and I feel like that was it kind of, if, it, if Nightmare on Silver did nothing else, it clarified Clara a great deal. She suffered in the early going with this early version of the character who was going to be Beryl. I was going to ask, this started off being written for for the Beryl the Victorian. Yes, yes. And, and, the, and the kids were yes. going to be the kids were going to be from that era too. Right. Like the, those kids that we see in the snowman, it would have been them. Okay. Um, carrying through. And that that would have been Victorian Clara, uh, who was like, mm. call Clara, she would call Beryl. Beryl, yeah. For Beryl Birch. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That cool. occurred to me, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, that changed fairly early on. I think at Caroline Skinner's insistence because she wanted the characters to be modern. Mm. And but that then threw everything out of balance when it came to writing Clara the governess and and the kids. Yeah, yeah. And they they sort of sidelined them through most of that season. But the one person who didn't tell to do that was Neil. Right. And right. He, so he stuck having to write them because I think he'd he'd started a Nightmare at Silver very early on. Right. And. They were originally called the Last Cyberman. Hmm. It came there, never in silver. Clearly, that's his title. Unlike Doctor's Wife, which is that was a title Stephen Moffat asked for late in the day. Mm-hmm. It, it, he'd been that Neil settled on bigger on the inside. That was his favorite title, but then okay. Stephen Moffat said, "Yeah, that's going to give give away the game too much. Let's call it the Doctor's <laughs> Wife." It, uh, and yes, I know it, this was on JNT posted boards <laughs> at, or exactly, it, it, yeah. chalkboard. <laughs> I know all that, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and for for some of the same sensationalist reasons mm. that JT put it there in the first place. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm intrigued about this two, ten minutes too long thing in the sense of, I mean I, I I understand that they that they carve out 
slots in in the broadcast schedule. But I guess you know three three or four months out, if you say to them actually it's fifty five rather than forty five, you know it, is that a so big a crime? I mean, it feels like these days things like Strictly Come Dancing. I mean, it's 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 a different length every week, and it seems to be that not that big a problem. And maybe it was diff- different in the late twenty. Live shows have that latitude. Yeah. Uh, when, but when you're making a show that you're going to be selling abroad and you've told everybody these right. you're going to have a set okay. of 45-minute episodes, 12 of them, here they are. The special, yeah, that can be longer, and we can stretch it. It's a special. We said right, it's, right. A, it's in the name, special, but for the regular episodes, they had to stick to a, a pretty tight time. It's probably more of a hangover because of having to service the various markets, and yes, and, so at that, and at that time. time with broadcast, and again, in this the, the age of streaming, everything seems to vary as well. A lot of the dramas... Yeah, mm-hmm. streaming like, well, can yeah, allow it. Okay. Expanding contracts right. and that's going to, yeah. Right, you're not having to deal with commercial time slot. Like, mm-hmm. like the American television was always, but still is, the, the broadcast networks seem to be fading pretty fast now. Mm-hmm. They're still stuck into the, the structure of having exactly, say, 42 minutes and 30 seconds. I was going to say 42 has come down yeah. to, hasn't it? Exactly yeah. that much content and the rest of, the, of an hour is filled with commercial breaks. Mm, and yeah. you can never vary from that. They've got to be exactly the, the same every time, which is the reason why mm. PBS always showed Doctor Who in these weird time slots, because mm-hmm. it doesn't vary so much. Right. Mm-hmm. And they, they had to stick in a late on weekends or on a Sunday afternoon when they weren't having to hit the network clocks. Mm-hmm. A little known thing that uh, I know the British fans always get on us about how the fact that we got to see the five Doctors two days before you did. <laughs> <laughs> But you, uh, I think we're over it. We're over it. <laughs> <laughs> Only just, but yes. But what you didn't know, and what we didn't realize for a long time, was our version was edited. Right. They they, uh-huh. they ran. They decided to run that on a national network mm-hmm. on November the twenty third, nineteen eighty three, and it had to fit a net hard network clock of eighty nine minutes and thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. The actual runtime of Five Doctors, I think, is ninety one ish, ninety and a few mm-hmm. seconds. So they had to trim it by about a minute and 40 seconds. And there were five little cuts that they made throughout the show that we never wound up in the theater. Even after the that initial write, it never got restored in the broadcast patch. It was always the 89 minute and 30 second version. And I never saw those little bits until the VHS came out years later, where they, they had to make similar cuts because of the tape length, I think, but they made them at different points. Right, and right. there were these other things. I'm like, what? What's that? I know this story like the back it's of my head. It's always weird when something like that pops yeah. up. I can recite the five yeah. doctors word for word by this point, all the way through. But then suddenly there's this extra little bit of scene where the matches say, these thunderbolts are everywhere. He'd never said that before. We didn't see that part. What? What's this yeah. charred corpse on the ground? We didn't see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Right. Gosh. So you had that up on. Mm. All right. Back to, uh, let's go back to my notes. Yeah. yeah. See, someone was talking about the junkyard at one point. That was going to have some extra little things. Like that, the stage direction of the script actually called the Totters Lane at the end of the universe. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Okay. So, and the stage directions also indicate that one of the pieces of junk, and this would put it in my. You don't see it in the episode, but I think you do see it in the confidential that went with this, mm-hmm. was an old piano. Okay. That was there. Can you guess why? Well, I don't know. Is, oh. it, is it a reference to the o- organ in the Attack of the Cybermen? I don't know. No, the, the, no, it's a, it's a TARDIS reference to the sound. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Right, okay. The, yes. the, the, <laughs> the key that was dragged along a string to make the sound effect of the TARDIS yeah. of deserialization. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was why I asked for that thing. Uh-huh. It was there. I saw a picture of it on the set, too, but I don't mm-hmm. think we actually see it in the final edit. Hmm. Let's see. Oh, you guys asked a question. Are we... 
outside the universe just so that we can have Time Lords in this story? And the answer is yes. Because it had been set up by the Ninth Doctor that yeah. when Rose asked, oh, couldn't there be some other Time Lords out there? And he's pointing at his head telepathically. Mm. He would sense them if there were. And the, yes, the, and yeah. the few times that they'd come back, he, mm. he did get a telepathic sense. Like when the Master finally comes back out of the watch, he, in the, yes, he, that yeah, human on the yeah. Doctor's face, suddenly he can sense him. He's there. Mm. And the whole bit where they're chasing after each other in the end of time, and, and, uh, one of the better parts of End of Time, which is a somewhat weak story. And I don't hit it as much as the Radio Free Scar guys do, but I, I do love those chase scenes where they're out on the, out on, the on those landscapes and the, the effects mm. that U.S. Lynn got there uh, were fantastic. And it telepathic sense again. Mm-hmm. And because he's not having it, if, if you go outside the universe, well, they'll, now you can have it. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's the reason why it had to be this bubble universe outside of our universe. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's interesting because that was one of my, you know, one of the few faults I picked in the Doctor's Wife when we when we were watching it was was I felt like the escape from the universe, like you know, let's let's just pop outside of the universe and into another one. That felt like it was a bit quick, but given that if they would have gone through a crack, yes, exactly, in some way in the in the series five version, mm. then you've got a, you've got something that's much more set up and. Whereas, uh, okay, weird stuff could happen. Yeah, it's a leftover um, thing from the series five version. Yeah, and you and you just want to start the story, obviously, as and get there, get to House's House's asteroid as quickly as possible. So, and let's see, you talked about having Michael Sheen on the show. That was Neil Neil's idea to, to bring him in. <laughs> they, they had made if you've listened to the David Tennant podcast where he's talking to Michael Sheen and Michael Sheen brilliantly tells the story of how they were. Uh, at that restaurant, and they got raided by the feds because it was serving Ill- illegal endangered species. <laughs> yeah, that that listen to the the David Tennant does okay. a podcast with Michael that. Sheen, yeah. and towards the end of it, he tells the story of how Michael Sheen and Neil Gaiman first hooked up. In fact, I think I might have. He talks about a package that he that he got sent. I think I was in the room the day that Nico Lorraine is insistent with packing that up to send to Michael Sheen, and so that was how they they first hooked up. And they were friends, and Neil suggested him to, hey, this, he, he could be a great house's voice. And there was a bit that got cut where he was going to have, we were going to see more of house's sense of humor during the, the chase scene. He was going to be doing an almost boss-like singing at them. With the song was, if you were the only boy in the world and I was the only girl. And Michael, she would have been singing that. But uh, <laughs> that, uh, as nephew chasing Amy and Roy around the fires, they, okay. they decided not to go with that. But it was written in there. The bunk beds joke, yeah, that one's Neil's. Uh, he he had that in there. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, another of the big jokes people I've talked about is Amy's line: uh, "Did you wish really hard when he tells her that Idris is a woman?" Yes, uh, <laughs> that was Stephen Moffat. Yeah, you put that in. Now the sexy mm-hmm. stuff that you guys were talking about that. If, yes, mm-hmm. I can call her sexy, and yeah, Neil put that in while well, I was riffing on how the Doctor called her that. In the eleventh hour, which Stephen Moffat wrote, so he's, he's picking right. up a Stephen Moffat thing there. So it's very, this was very much a collaborative writing. It was never mm-hmm. a, yeah. a case of you go away, I'm going to rewrite you, like yeah. maybe yeah. certain script editors have done in the past. No, it was always communication going back and forth all the way through. In fact, even on the day something happened, I remember I had a, a copy of the shooting schedule, and I was just daydreaming, looking, sitting on my on this couch that you see behind me here. <laughs> Looking at the schedule, going, oh, I think I'll just read the scenes that are going to be shot today. This will be fun. This is happening now as I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is cool. And I, <laughs> I'm looking at those lines. I'm going, 
and it's the doctor meeting Idris in the prison for the first time. Mm-hmm. And when one of her lines, she uses the word hello. And I go, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. This happened in one of these rewrites, one of these many rewrites. That I don't know who put it back, mm-hmm. who put it in there, but she cannot say hello at this point. And it, it, it reminded me of it, this happened on Star Trek Next Generation where they meet Hugh, the Borg, and he's always saying we. And right, except right, they accidentally they missed it, they missed one. He does say I at one point, and like, she can't say hello at this point. Uh, so I quickly emailed Neil because he, he was it was one of the two days he was there for that shoot. Right. right. Uh, he wanted to be there for the whole thing, but it, they swapped the production order with Night Terror. They shot, wound up shooting Night Terrors first and then Doctor What. And because of that, in his own schedule, he could only be there for the first two days. But he was still there, I, I think. And I said, look, she can't say that yet. And he go, oh, but it's too late. We can't change it. Can we? It's just one word. Can, can let mm-hmm. Saran Jones, please. And then they fixed it. And so uh, they could have done it maybe in ADR, but it would have looked a little awkward to see someone yeah. say yeah. one word. But they did fix that last last second. Let's see, what else have we got? And you asked about why does the Ood have green eyes when normally they're Oh yes. Yeah, Paul was asking that. Well, when we have a normal Ood, they have normal almost human colored eyes. Then when they get possessed by Satan or what or whatever it is, they turn red and come after you. Mm-hmm. They went with green eyes here because green was kind of the, the color for house. House was the green gas. The green gas. There was an early notion of actually attaching a hose to the top of the TARDIS and going over the light. And it was a mm. pump the yellow light of the TARDIS out and then pump the green gas of, uh-huh. of, of, of house into it. Or it wasn't a, a hose, it was a tentacle. Because the original, in the series, the early drafts of Series 5 version, there were tentacles everywhere. And mm-hmm. I, I think I pointed out, and then they pointed out too, that you know if science fiction doesn't like doing tentacles if they don't have to because it usually looks pretty bad <laughs> and, and expensive. And so that that all got that all got cut. Yeah, it was was a more organic feel to House in, in the mm-hmm. beginning. And in fact, there's a there's a deleted scene that Neil did post from the deleted from the drafts that they never got even close to shooting this of of having dinner with Auntie and Uncle. In House's domain, early on in the show, and, and all the food being squirted out of tentacles, you know, this puddle, and that that if you dig around in the archives of Neil's blog at his website, neilgamer.com, I think he he posted it there once, and he probably still find it there. Right, the dinner scene. He was very, he really liked that scene. I I kept mm-hmm. thinking this is dragging it too, it making things too slow. They said the same thing, so they eventually mm-hmm. it ended up. I think I, I prefer the the idea of house being like a non yes more non corporeal yeah than if you if you if you add tentacles and things then that suggests well hang on is it some although that mm-hmm. would all grow that was something uh, another line that I think was recorded with Todd was the notion that house had got there as a spore and fell right, yeah. through the crack. And grew mm-hmm. there. That's that uh, as he kept feeding off of time energy, from, mm-hmm. both from the crack itself, because time energy would be le- leaking through it. Yeah, and then from the the TARDISes and other spaceships. It's also well connected to Series Five in that regard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a setup. Yeah, the whole I stole a Time Lord and, and ran away. And how you, know, you thought that when in the name of the name of the Doctor, one of the of the Doctor stories, it looks like Moffat trod on over that by having cars mm. say steal this part as well. You gotta remember, originally the great intelligence messed that up. This is true, yes. Yeah. 
it happened the way we saw. She's only putting things back. Yeah. Right. She's putting things. Mm -hmm. She's restoring things. Right. It's mm -hmm. so it's, it doesn't really trot on it at all. Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. It's the villain messes up what was established and what was established mm -hmm. had been established, which we said, and then Clara puts it back again. So that's okay, in my opinion, anyway. Oh, and there was one point where Neil suggested, "Hey, what if we suggest that maybe House is going to become the Great Elish?" Ooh, and right. Stephen Moffat did not use that. We wanted to okay. and he didn't, didn't say why at the time. At least I didn't see mm. I didn't say why. I didn't see all the email traffic, but I, I saw a lot of it. And we went, "Well, why you didn't do that?" Well, we had other things to worry about. And then <laughs> along comes the Great Intelligence does make a comeback. Yes, yes. And, and, and who knows if that even happened because Web of Fear had been discovered. Mm. That mm. Mm. I'm not. I'm still not sure about all sequence events on that. Oh, there was a line that they, they asked Neil to include to help set up what was going on in Series 6, and that was, oh, the only water in the forest is the river. Mm. To set up the river salon business, that's one of the things Idris said just before she dies, because she can see that in the future. And then they know that, aha, this and that comes up in Good Night Ghost of War. Yes, this had to be a one-off. This was never going to happen again. At least if mm -hmm. now, uh, they will talk to this directly. Closest mm -hmm. we've ever got to that is the the hologram here and there, and where it's saying computerized phrases. TARDIS console flight—that's a direct lift from Inferno, flying a console around my oh, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And oh, Susanna Lee's credits. Susanna Lee was the was the girl who won the Blue Peter contest for design the junkyard. Ah, uh, right, yeah. And I mean, when we got to see the five was almost the final edit, like about a month before it aired. Mm -hmm. And I, I read the credits to see. Did I sneak in there? No, of course not. I'm not. I'm, not, I'm unofficial. I, I, I didn't sign the confidentiality. <laughs> yeah, that was another funny thing. That all this we're, we're being all this careful about. I didn't really. I'm not. I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, the production staff can't know I'm. On, I'm helping. I think was. I think Stephen Moffat knew with this. Mm -hmm. And then, as it turned out, they had forgotten to send Neil a confidentiality agreement. Fine. Until like a month before it aired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we were fine all the time. But anyway, I, I'm looking at those credits and I read, wait a minute. They, they never credited the junkyard console designer. It, mm -hmm. She was missing on the credits. And I think the episode, the version that aired, she's not there, but she is on the DVD version. And I forget Ooh, what's on the okay. iPlayer. I don't know what's on the iPlayer. I don't have. Mm -hmm. I don't have mm -hmm. I can't check that out, but so on some of the credits she's there, and some of them she had them because they forgot to put her in there. Yeah, yeah. they might have incurred the loss of Billy Baxter. Yeah, <laughs> she was still around. <laughs> I made sure I collected all the ancillary stuff that I knew was coming, um, mm. and saved it on the DVD file. Thing. And, and one of the things is when that Blue Peter contest started, it was started by Elizabeth Slate on the set, and it might have been the last oh, time right. she did I don't something. Think it was the, that might, I think that might have been the last time she did something officially on the air, apart from Chupa's three Sergio Adventure shows that they did mm -hmm. just, they did finish before. Yeah, they'll, so that's a little uh, melancholy there. Oh, you were asking about the Corsair, and could we see Adventures of the Corsair, the character of, uh, with the, the Ouroboros snake tattoo on his arm that was yes. wound up on Uncle's body, I believe. And, yeah, the, well, there is the story that Neil wrote for him in the Adventures of the Lockdown. Mm. And Russell T. Davis liked the character so much that he was going to do a bit of a retcon. Had Sarah Jane season five been finished, they were going to bring this back that fortune teller like time character 
who we'd seen in series four, mm-hmm. and when we saw him in season five uh, with Neil Ascent, which he gave uh, or was going to give, they were mm-hmm. going to say that this was the Corsair, and that he had, right. he had either either he had somehow survived or we're seeing him at a point before you end up in Taz's domain. We never never got any any will of that. So yeah, they could have done something, but yeah, he's got this pretty good swashbuckling story about mm-hmm. the Corsair in the Adventures of Lockdown story. If you want to see some Corsair adventures, there they are. Another little idea I had, I don't think it got very far because we were getting, we were getting too close to production, was that, you know, if you've got the, there's the part where the doctor opens the closet and there's all those Time Lord message boxes and you're hearing Time Lord going, please help me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yes, yeah, I yeah. suggested, hey, let's get Colin Baker to record one of these with Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> but that, they, they did, that didn't happen. <laughs> Oh, and one one thing, uh, a great idea of Stephen Moffat's that had to be cut on cough freezes was uh, uh, the scene where we look over the, that vista of junk, and the one line that I suggested that wound up in the sh- pretty much as I said it, just in the show was Idris says, "I think that all my sisters are dead. They were devoured mm-hmm. when looking at their corpses." That was something I, I I'd asked for and wound up in their hand. But mm-hmm. while they're looking at the junk, Moffat wrote in a, a bit where we were going to reveal that the chameleon circuits for these TARDISes were still functioning. And that a lot of the junk that you see there is is actual TARDIS component, high-tech stuff. Okay. And they sure. were going to have Idris look at, have the doctor look through Idris's eyes for a moment mm-hmm. because she can see through that. And yeah. Yeah. All, it would have all just faded and turned into actual technological, real high-tech componentry that they could then mm-hmm. harvest to build, build the console data to, to go on pursuit. That all had to be cut on cost grounds because that was yeah. one CG shot too many, and again it was adding another minute to a story that was already too too long. But I really mm-hmm. missed that. That was a great idea. Mm-hmm. A lot I wish they, they could have done. Yeah, that even mm-hmm. uh, even a TARDIS component can have a chameleon effect on it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I think the last notes I've got here are why would this have happened? Why did this happen with other TARDISes? Because you know, they would have done this same procedure. They suck out the matrix, mm-hmm. put it into a body, and a body, and the body dies. Mm-hmm. Harmlessly, the, the energy dissipates. It's not dangerous. Why is this TARDIS being so proactive, being a, a real character as, as mm-hmm. best she can? Why is she helping out? And because th- th- this had not happened before. With, and this was, a, this was a, that was a plot point I, I thought was a bit of a plot hole and suggested that there be something to cover that. And it wasn't there. I don't know if they shot it. I know it was in the final shooting script, but it was Cut on timing grounds, where cool. we would have seen auntie and uncle discussing why is this happening? This had never happened before, mm-hmm. and we were going to have the suggestion somewhere along the line that it's because this Taurus has done so much more traveling than the, the other did. Mm-hmm. She is right. she is so much further developed as a character in her, in her own right mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of her relationship with the Doctor. And I think of the mileage she has put on compared to any other Taurus we've ever seen in the series. Mm-hmm. And how much and how much more traveling she's done, she's done as much mm-hmm. as the doctor has, and that's the reason why she survived as well as she did when the others all just died. And yeah, okay. that, that got, that got cut on time grounds. Okay. And the last line, oh, someone asked, um, was this line that the doctor has what house goes up and says, "Fear me, I've killed hundreds of time lords." And the doctor goes, mm-hmm. "It says so." And this state direction is so blue you me. I killed all of them. That was Neil. Mm-hmm. That was not. That was not. That was, that was that was Neil right from the start. And I, and that was right. that was me. Go. Ooh. 
Mm. I, I don't know because that was in the very, very first draft. I, I like, oh yeah, and that was just let's show the Doctor's dark side. He got mm. one. I can almost see yeah. a black and white Patrick Troughton with the lines that his face getting really cursed, mm. saying something like this. Yeah, <laughs> and that was something. That was something also really cool that uh, Moffat had sent Neil and the other writers Matt Smith's audition tape, and he showed it to me once. And this mm-hmm. boot, so that they all had something to go on. This is how he's going to be playing the part. He could no one see mm-hmm. it yet when it would arrive to series five. And this is before eleventh hour aired when I got to see it. And I'm like, oh, wow, he's doing you know Patrick Trout. Mm-hmm. That was the vibe I got from it. And mm-hmm. in the intense scene, the confrontational scenes where he's facing down a villain, I'm getting mm-hmm. such a serious Patrick Trout vibe from it. He already had them. Before he had it in his audition, before he'd ever seen any classic, right? Movies. And yeah. then Moffat then told him, "Go, go watch some Trotten." That he did. He raised about and mm. Matson has written many times, raved about how good he thought Tomb of the Sacrum was, it's because I'm sure Stephen Moffat saw that too. That uh-huh. his, his natural instincts were taking him in a Trotten-esque direction, mm. and that's probably one of the big reason he won the part. I'm sure. Mm. And so I think that that line there, the fear me, I killed all of them, did is. A little mm-hmm. of that, you know, how the second doctor secretly pushes the buttons to let Klee open the, the hatch yeah. into the Cybermen. Yeah, you know, those dark moments yeah. that he has, or you get evil the Daleks too, yeah. where you're yeah. being, Am I the bad guy? Am I the bad guy? Maybe mm-hmm. I am. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. It's one of those. <laughs> That's why that. It's one of those tricky things because trying to, one, catch with doing, doing things the way we do and coming back and just like dropping in randomly, you know, and comparing. Random new new series stuff is once you slightly tend to lose track of the yeah exactly where we were in our knowledge of of things and it's funny that um, rewatching Nightmare in Silver before this I was thinking oh, this is interesting because the whole thing with Porridge uh, the Emperor yeah, is yeah. such a foreshadowing of what we get in two episodes time with the War Doctor and the the whole thing I mean I guess maybe it was a bit more. I don't know whether it was a bit more shaped in what we had, what our expectations of what the Doctor had been up to in time or by this point was. But the the moment when Boyd Davis says, oh, you know, you know who I feel sorry for, the person who had to yeah. Yeah, yes. pre- press the button. And, you know, within, <laughs> he's talking about himself, as it turns out. But he's also, <laughs> yeah, you also think he's also talking about John Hurt. Yeah, <laughs> but that wasn't, yeah, you, I can see why you would think that maybe that's Stephen Moffat. Doing a setup mm-hmm. thing, but it it wasn't. That was that was Neil. Um, mm-hmm. He had that. He had that Delightment Silver right from the beginning. But that's. I guess it was if Neil had it in his head at that point. You know, clearly because if he had it in his head at, at, by the Doctor's wife, yes, we know the Doctor probably did. You know, did press the button, mm-hmm. and so it's it made sense to be drawing the parallel, even if you don't know what's coming down the pipe in. In the 60th, 50th anniversary, you've dropped a memory now that I forgot about this. Where Neil put in this this scene where he oh th- this was another thing that they never got on um, where again people weren't on the same page about how Matt Smith mm-hmm. should play the Cyber Flanner and should he be a uh, cold and unemotional or should he be crazy Joker like character in that way with mm-hmm. crazy Joker like character. Me personally, I was hoping for the cold and emotional yeah. uh, mm-hmm. thing, but that isn't what they did. And Matt was under such pressure at this time. I, I, I he had to, he had to carry so much of that one, and they were under the gun on the shooting schedule at this point because they'd had a the location shoot got hit by a blizzard, and mm. they had to 
they had to delay everything, and Matt had to be shooting on that wall at the same time to try to read the back at them. And they can't use the Doctor for this. Ranoff is excited to do the Nightmare Shield Silver reshoot. That's why he goes absent from Reef of Akaten for a while. Uh-huh. Yeah, they just, just, just didn't want to press that on him. But yeah, there was this, there's a scene where he's he's confronting, the, the Doctor's confronting the Cyber Planner in his own head, and we get this flashback to all the previous generations. Yes. yes. And I remember sticking my hand up to Pili Seville to say, you know, this would be a chance we could actually show the Eighth Doctor, the Ninth Doctor regeneration that we never saw. Mm. In, in, in the show, <laughs> so we could complete the box. Let's mm. can we do that. I don't know if he passed it on to Stephen Moffat, but and obviously he didn't do it there. And then mm. and two episodes later, we found out why. Yeah. <laughs> he was doing it. Yeah. He would know. There's another doctor in there that we we don't see in this book. Ah, God knows how that would work in terms of the um, considering what a late invention yeah. the yeah. War Doctor was. Anyway, I'm not sure where that would connect to. Yeah, when yeah. this was when this was being when Nightmare and Silver was being written, as opposed to yeah when he was when he was writing that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. he didn't know any of that, but not none of that mm. was communicated back yeah, to yeah. the deal. He, no, he no. didn't want to know. He never wanted to know of stuff that he didn't need to know. No, 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 no like yeah. like when yeah. he was writing the series six stuff, I mm-hmm. they sent him the overall pressy of what each story was going to be, but nothing beyond mm. that. He, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't have to do it. Like we yeah. didn't, we had no idea we didn't have the the real Amy in Doctor's mm-hmm. One. That that was that was flesh Amy the whole time. Yeah, that was right. yeah. Neither Neil nor I knew that. Really, he, he, mm-hmm. Neil knew you didn't tell me. Uh, <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock when we get to the end of <laughs> the almost people. But wait yeah. a minute, we weren't writing for a real Amy. But then how was they? How were they controlling her through the into the u- other universe? Well, I guess they did. That's how powerful they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 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 So he didn't want to know yeah, those things. So he didn't want to be able to watch those and enjoy them, you know, without yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it's better not to remember all those things because it's easier just to, to in, in, enjoy the, the story for what it is. But yes, I, I agree that because we're Doctor Who fans, we kind of like to go into all of those things as uh, continuity things as well. I, I mean, I, I, I watched Nightmare in Silver earlier today. I, I, I did actually greatly enjoy it, but I did think that the Matt Smith two parts in the same head thing is the one thing that, that didn't just quite work to me. I think because it was a bit too manic, but I mean, your explanation of, of why it is the way it is makes an awful lot of sense. I also, the association I made around Porridge and the Emperor was was like from the uh, Foundation series when you discover that the who the... Um, the mule is. I mean, I, I won't. I won't throw any spoilers out if, in case anyone hasn't read the, that that series. Of I read it thirty years ago. I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's a similar sort of thing where it's a character you wouldn't expect who turns out to be kind of like the the, the one who's in charge. And I, I, I don't know whether whether Neil's an Asimov fan or not. Well, he's a fan of all the classic. Yeah. Yeah. Name me a, a classic science fiction or fantasy story. If it ever won a Hugo Award, he was probably a fan of it. Yeah. Right. And if yeah. so, yes. Asimov, Brad, he was he was first of all, Ray Bradbury, uh, Harlan Ellison, all of them. Um, I remember Harlan did it. You know, there was a convention held in Madison, Wisconsin, which wound up being Harlan Ellison. The last one Harlan Ellison did in person, but he was great. He kept saying all weekend, I'm going to be dying soon. And actually, he turned out he was a little healthier than he thought he was. He didn't die for another five years, but it was still his last convention. And right. Neil was going to be a surprise guest at that, turned out uh, as well. And because the shooting schedule changed on Doctor's Wife, he couldn't do it because they were shooting, and he was there busy while this convention was going on. And I remember Neil and I talking about this the next time I saw Neil, 
and we're, we're talking about it how Harlan had been off of built uh, during the convention. And then the phone rings and Maureen comes, uh, his assistant comes in and said, Neil, it's Harlan. He phoned, phoned up while we were talking. About <laughs> Has he bugged the room? What? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yeah, he knows all those people. He knows all those, the, all their, mm. their tricks and, and he, he employs them himself. Uh, mm. Yes. Yeah, no, I I thoroughly enjoyed. I felt I got a lot more out of rewatching Nightmare of Silver, which again, it's it's the it's that classic thing on this thing that I don't think I've watched it since Transmission. Probably. Yeah, not really. Um, and and I I thought, hang on, why does this have why does this have a bad rep in? And is it is it just the is it just that the expectations were so high after the Doctor's Wife, which obviously no, probably every, pretty either. much everybody loves, and I don't take. I I take what you say about the the kind of tonal mismatch. It's not like a, a, yeah things don't quite gel together. Yeah. In the same way, you know, in the same way as they do on the Doctor's Wife, where everyone's exactly on the same page. But we did lose more essential scene this time than we did in Doctor. Right. But I still I still felt I thought this is thoroughly entertaining. Yeah. Um, there yeah, was a but, part that the they. There were four four whole scenes at the very beginning that were mm-hmm. uh, in, in the in, in the final script, but they cut them and didn't actually shoot them. Where the doctor was going to meet up with Clara and the kids in a graveyard, uh, probably mm-hmm. the, the same one half Clara is buried in. We saw right, briefly yeah. in the Belt of Saint John, mm-hmm. and they were going to meet up there, and that's where the whole discussion about I have got a golden ticket to take you to this this uh, right. to mm-hmm. the, this fun fair uh, in the future. Which in the original drafts of that, the, the idea was it was going to be um, like Disneyland from the fifties. It was going to be a, a, re- a purposely built retro park in the future, uh, but right. built with fifties sort of technology, because uh, mm-hmm. there was going to be a whole business about how if the technology was that old, the Cybermen couldn't harvest it and come back. Mm-hmm. And Bringing Angie bringing her phone there was going to be the thing to set everything off because they were going to be able to harvest all the the technology out of the phone, right. Right. complete yeah. the last little bits that they needed mm. to get to get the production line up and running again. Yes. Up until then, they they all that kind of technology had been pulled away and not not allowed on the planet. That so that was mm. going to be the exciting incident. Yeah. Mm. And but then it turned out they couldn't come up with a, a suitable location. I thought that I, I think I, I told suggested to Neil and that the uh, Sarah Jane Adventures had shown had done a whole story in uh, a disused amusement park. Hmm. The one that Brian Miller's in, it well, uh, I can't remember yeah. the title. I think it's a it's a season opener of either series three or four. I thought, oh, they could go back there again, but it turned out that hmm. that had been torn apart or closed down or something by this point, so it wasn't hmm. wasn't available anymore. So they couldn't do that, and so they had to go with a, a different kind of. Uh, funny, my my memories of Doctor's Wife are very clear, and and but the Nightmare Silver ones have faded more, mm-hmm. even though that's more recent. Although that all that much more recent. Yeah. I mean, I felt the the Royal Dal. I mean, the Golden Ticket's the most obvious thing, but the whole, yeah, you know, the whole Royal Dali, you know, shot in the chocolate factory thing. And I I feel like okay, the the kids are not the strongest actors. In it, but I again, I, and I thought, is this why people don't? But you know, they're barely in. The, yeah, know, they're, they're pretty. In the, in the final pretty one, yeah. rapidly reduced to just having to stand around. They're barely in the final version. They were in it a lot more originally. 
yeah. a lot of their material was cut because and, they were not. But, but you know, know. They were. and again, again, I don't. Director yeah. was failing to coax the best performances from them. Sure. Right, yeah. but slightly bullshit, slightly stroppy, obnoxious kids. Again, it's it fits in with that with the raw dull kind of vibe and setting the Cybermen in amongst that, and you know, it's it's nice and the, the whole thing with the mechanical Turk at the start yeah. with the. You know, the idea. Apparently, Big Finish had done a, a Silver Church story of their yeah. own again with Cybermen, and I was unaware of that at the time. I I, I stopped I stopped following Big I, I, when Big Finish got going. Mm-hmm. I followed them religiously up until about mm-hmm. the second year of Nick Brick being in charge. That I right. Thought, right. I found my at that point the, the television show was back, and I found right. myself not being nearly as engaged with the Big Finish stuff anymore, mm-hmm. nearly as exciting as the TV series was. So I stopped listening. Except for the odd thing here and there, and I, I was unaware of the, the, that they had done a silver turk story. Had I known, I probably would have told you, uh, they mm-hmm. this is a big finish. Maybe we shouldn't do it." No one in Cardiff said they'd done this mm-hmm. big finish. Maybe we shouldn't do it. So it, it was, mm-hmm. that was a complete coincidence. Okay. I think it's nice. Yeah, I, I think I think that's nice, and the the, the whole reveal as with the original, you know, as with the original mechanical turk. There's some guy behind the scenes pulling the levers. <laughs> Is is not yeah, is nice and that's disposed of pretty quickly. I mean, I think I think the thing with the chess game it feels slightly over, but on the other hand, it's not um, you know, in some ways it's just a device because it's not a real it's not a real chess game. The doctor mm-hmm. does say that the Heimlich invented chess in some. Yes, yeah. yeah. But is he just bluffing? You know, is he just bluffing? Because at that point, he's what, what he's, he's lying that he's lying that he's got mating three moves about. So I think that was Neil's idea, and I said, "Hey, mm-hmm. this this actually ties in pretty well because there's a story in the classic show where Chet yeah. is a big th- deal. Why is it a big time lord deal? This kind of explaining yeah. that that's for Fender, of course. And the whole reason there's a tattoo that made of a mm-hmm. big deal of a doctor's wife, the, the one that the yeah. Corsair had, was mm-hmm. uh, was because of John Furtwee's tattoo. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, we, we we thought, it, yeah, yeah, you had to change one of the lines to say that the. Corsair deliberately incorporated the tattoo into each regeneration. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, this brilliant. This explains how John Pertwee freshly regenerated as a tattoo in Spirit of Space. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. came with the regeneration. So, yeah. yeah. So maybe, I know, yeah. if they really want to do this, what they ought to do is use that as kind of an explanation of how the Doctor's clothes have changed mm-hmm. in this, this latest regeneration that we've just seen. You know? Ooh. Uh, uh, and, yeah. and, it, it's, and it's a nice link, actually, between... Fenric and this is that in both cases the way in which the chess game is won is completely outside the rules of chess. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. Can't remember. Can't remember if Fenric is one I'd be able to watch or not. Yeah. Might have done. He did say one of the better Sylvester McCoy stories. He had not. I don't think he watched them on the, on the first go. I think when we when we did back when way back when when we did Curse of Fenric, I seem to remember refer, probably referring to it as Game and Esque. Um, no, yeah, <laughs> it is. But I think, I think at the time, the probably the point of reference that people had for a lot of that season twenty five, twenty six stuff was um, Clyde Barker. Probably mm. would have been more, yeah, Weave World and sort of all that, yeah, that sort of. He was only yeah. just, he was only just getting in, doing his Sam and stuff. He had, at that point. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The idea, the end of Never Were, yeah, that was like, mm. yeah. no, no, that's nineties. The TV series is surprisingly late, ninety six, apparently. But again, it hit very much hits squarely on that. Yeah, hang on, if they bring back Doctor Who, this is what it's. Yeah, yeah. This feels like Doctor Who if it came back. 
it's, it, it's interesting. I think also the within Nightmare of Silver, and you, you can tell me whether whether this is um, you know, something you discussed, Steve. But but the 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 Cybermen and the and the humans are sort of in different positions. So because I mean the Cybermen must have technology that's as good as human technology so they could just blow up planets as well but i guess the reason why they won't do that is because they want the people for the spare parts Hmm. so actually although they're very technologically advanced because they're desperate to catch people it actually puts them in a weaker position i guess you can look at it Mm -hmm. like that yeah but yeah they are well i want to say assimilating people (laughs) yeah but then the star trek people will go hey that's the borg and i'll go yeah (laughs) the borg who were introduced in an episode called q who Mm. Yeah, are you sure that you that 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 idea is as original as mm. one of us? Uh, yeah, they, they're out to convert more than they are to conquer. They'll, mm. they'll, they'll conquer when they need to. Um, well, if they conversion the thing, they they want first. But yeah, I mean, I I I, I love those those old sixty Cybermen stories. I mean, but, um, and and it does feel like they've never quite recaptured the uh, the essence of that in the new series. I thought they took a big step toward that in World Enough in Time. And, yeah, uh, yeah. That mm. was the that was the kind of Cyberman story that like the one of the better big fish audiences that I did listen to it really loved yes. was Spare Parts. Yeah. yeah, you can really see the links there. Uh, yeah, that, between that story and what, what's um. Of the new era, that's probably my favorite Simon story. Well, enough in time, and, uh, and I, I, I agree, and I think World Enough in Time is is you know one of the one of the great episodes in the new series. I was a bit disappointed with the following episode, the Doctor Falls. It sort of felt like that that then they've they've got more kind of groups of Cybermen doing new series Cybermen stuff. But but certainly the the the, the first episode of the two, I think, really, as you say, it captures that kind of horror of what the Cybermen mm. are. Yeah, yeah. There comes a point in a lot of seasons where they realize, okay. What else have we got in the cupboard that we can use cheaply? Yes, mm. bring bring those costumes out. Yeah, that we can. <laughs> well, that that was one of the start. Another starting point of Nightmare Silver was the um that the costume store that they had was pretty beat up at this point. They, right. Uh, they didn't have much left, so the, the redesign, the the old Iron Man look of the of the Cybermen, mm. Nightmare Silver was was part of the the reason Natra for doing the episode of the first place. They needed new cyber suits. Mm. Okay. It's a very nice new design. Definitely. Yeah, nice yeah I, like, I like the design. It looks Sleek. great. But as you say, it's the, the stumpiness. The... Right. And we got confused on the whole bullet time thing. Too, where's the, there's the one who goes in super fast. That's the oh, yeah. Thing, and then they never do it again. And you wonder no, why. Right. And I can't, for the life of me now, I know there was a reason mm. why it, it wound up this way. And it's something that got caught. And I, but I can't now remember what it was. Mm. I'm so, uh, sorry about that. Yeah. Everybody's failing me there. It was long. It was. It was. It took a long time because again, it was it happened during fear when Neil was busy rang on anything. But it seemed like there was a lot less work had to go into getting Nightmare and Silver done. I think he only did three or four drafts of that, as opposed right, right. to the. Well, I think we lost count somewhere in the team of Doctor Life. It was, it was <clears> well. It was at least a dozen drafts between Ed and, and Stephen Moffat on Doctor's Life. But yeah, Nightmare and Silver went luck quicker. Although he did lose a bit of one. I remember meeting him in a parking lot as he's as he flew back from somewhere, and I had given something. They had to give me something back, and then they left again. And when he got home, he emailed to say, "Oh no, no! I just realized I I left my laptop on the computer on the plane, flying on." And he had the his initial first few scenes of the doc the Doctor Farrell and the Victorian kids mm-hmm. were on that, mm-hmm. and. 
the the laptop never turned up again. And those are so that that's a deleted scene. Oh, damn. Damn. <laughs> Somewhere in 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 probably Delta Airlines. Lost <laughs> uh, and found. There's a the deleted scene from Nightmare in Silver that it, that never made it because it because we had to redo it. Yeah, well. So do you know, Steve, what, why we haven't seen uh, subsequent stories from Neil? I mean, did he just feel like he'd he'd done it by, by with the two stories, and that was fine, and he'd moving on to other things? Or well, he, he, he his own career just picked up more and more yeah, yeah, yeah. with more and more television uh, stuff, and and his own mm. his own life just got busier, and he didn't have the time to do it again. And sure, sure. Uh, I, and he moved away from me. <laughs> mm. Nightmare and Silver was finishing up just at the point where he moved away right. to, be, to be with uh, the Vanda Palmer, the second wife. He was here originally at first place, first place from this area. And then they raised their kid uh-huh. together. Uh, although I hear now, um, you know, they're being divorcing. Like, he's been in New Zealand a lot lately. They got stuck yeah, there during, during lockdown. She was doing a concert tour, first of Australia, then New Zealand, then lockdown happened. And New Zealand shut their borders harder than anyone else did almost. Mm. And the same reason Mark Strickson wasn't available to do stuff for the, oh, right. for the collection set, because that's where he lives. Hmm. He wanted stuff. And then he also was trying to show or run shows during COVID, and it's just been too busy. He was, hmm. he, I remember he was originally very keen to try and do something for Peter Capaldi and his doctor, just because they he done, he played the Angelisms in for him. Yes, yeah, history, yeah. But his, his schedule just wouldn't, just, wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. He, he he has been happy to do the odd little thing here and there, like the odd short story for a collection. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. he can he can find the time for that. It's just finding the time when all this other when Sandman is taken off for Netflix. Well, well, that's the thing. It feels like a lot of the logjam of lots of Neil Gaiman related TV series have have all suddenly they flooded in and lost. And obviously, that I guess creates a virtuous circle of. Of people looking for stuff and saying, "Can we do this?" And yeah, we'll see if things ever calm down and he's able to do something for Russell at some point. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't get my ults up just because of the, the all the scheduling issue. Although you think they might get a little simpler now that COVID doesn't seem to be as big mm-hmm. a problem for people making things anymore. Knock on wood. So yeah, I I don't know if it'll. He, he, I think he's open to it. Whether he'll ever get time to do it again. Sure. <laughs> I think that it's been really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hearing, hearing all of this and really getting it. Yeah, thanks ever so much. You, you, you've, you've given us a huge amount of stuff. Inside its view. It's re- really good of you to, yeah. Thanks for thanks for reaching out and, uh, yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you. I love, uh, I love the podcast. I've been listening for about nine months or so, I think. Okay, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's these, the, the, the late, these links between the old and the new were kind of what I was doing there. And, yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's 10 years now. Yeah, that's kind of what I was doing. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, I I like like when it happens. Yeah. Although yeah, to, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a new new story that's completely new on its own. That that's really good. Let's say a girl in the fireplace, or it, mm. well, yeah, when when it happens like this, I, I quite like it. Well, surprising how things rhyme, even if they don't. Yeah. You know, yes. Even when they don't, even when things don't repeat, we often find ourselves mm. with the loosest of connections, and then and then suddenly you think, hang on, there's a lot more here. These things have in common, or they speak to each other in different ways, so... Yeah. Yeah. Okay.